This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined today by myself, Sam from Motive Partners, and Matthew Blake from the World Economic Forum. Welcome. Great to be here, Sam. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been all over the world recently, and you've arrived in a, a sweltering hot London. I think today may well be the record temperature we've ever had. You're going to hopefully leave here for cooler climbs afterwards. Um, for our listeners, you're from the World Economic Forum. You've achieved amazing things in a relatively a short space of time. It would be fantastic if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and, and what you've been up to prior to the forum. Sure. So I'm a native of New York. I grew up in Queens, New York, and really always had a fascination with markets and economics and the intersection of business and government. And it's kind of taken me in some interesting directions over the years. I started by managing money with Oppenheimer and Company almost 15 years ago now and overseeing pensions and endowments and private client money. And so I got, uh, in a practitioner way, very acquainted with markets. And during that time frame, actually just before the financial crisis, I made a determination to go back to school. And I wanted to really understand better the intersection of business and where policy come together. So I chose to go to the Kennedy School at Harvard. And this was really a sort of a launching point for me for a second leg of my career which has brought me to the forum. First, I spent some time at the Central Bank of the United States, uh, the New York Fed, looking at systemically important financial institutions from a trading perspective, and then went on to run the banking capital markets team at the World Economic Forum. I'm now running the uh, financial services industry team globally, both uh, the relationship work that we do and also the content work. Thank you. The World Economic Forum is an organization that I've had the great privilege of getting to know over the last four or five years. You do fantastic work. I think to the outside world, probably most known for its annual gathering in the beautiful ski resort Davos. But the World Economic Forum is the international organization for public-private cooperation, uh, a really important segue between two different sides of the economy. Could you perhaps tell people a, a little bit about the construct of the World Economic Forum? Can I do a little bit of a demystify of, of the organization that sure. has achieved so much in, uh, and made such great changes to the state of the world? Yeah, we're coming up on our 50th year in existence. And our founder and executive chairman, Klaus Schwab, has really developed an institution from scratch while realizing China-like growth rates. We've grown at about 10% per annum for essentially that entire time frame. And we've expanded our footprint from being a European-based organization to having exposure to China, offices in China, offices in Japan, the United States, and we continue to grow and be dynamic. As you mentioned, it's a very important distinction, actually, this notion of being the international organization for public-private cooperation is relatively new for us. Mm. We changed our legal statute about four years ago now, three and a half years ago, maybe. And we were initially a non-for-profit for the bulk of our existence, but we made a concerted effort to change. And there's a strategic aspect to that. You know, We are impartial, neutral. We do not play to special interests. We work extremely closely with business thousand member companies around the globe across 20 different industries. Mm -hmm. We have relationships with almost every government on the planet. 
We have deep networks with academia across the globe. And we also have a sprawling and interesting civil society network. At our core, we are a multi-stakeholder organization. So any type of topic that we look to tackle, be it climate change, the future of financial and monetary systems, investment, trade, so on, we look to source a multi-stakeholder view and multi-stakeholder approach in that work. And it's a differentiating value for us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We think especially in a world where that is becoming, unfortunately, increasingly fractured, that the role of an organization like ours to bring oftentimes polar opposite views together around a table or around a particular topic or initiative is becoming exponentially important. And teams like mine that focus on financial services, but other teams around the house really embody that mission to try and move these initiatives in the right direction and work in a multi-stakeholder, open manner and in a professional manner. Speaking of, of multi-stakeholders, even within the forum, you have various different ways to engage. There's obviously the membership component that, that again, is, is tiered across different types of strategic partner. But then you also have an incredible way to engage with the younger segment, the, the future of the economic improvement agenda. You have the global shapers, uh, which is, as far as I can remember, are the under 30s, the young global leaders who are the under 40s or 30s to 40s. And you have a number of other awards and um, accolades like the Tech Pioneer programs. Could you talk maybe a little bit about them? Because I know our listeners will be fascinated to know and aspire to be in a position where they can engage across those different areas. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the, the really interesting attributes of the form is this generational piece. You know, we are very well known, as you mentioned, for the annual meeting in Davos. That brings together the foremost leaders, political, also business, across the globe. And, you know, if you were to do an age analysis on that group, they are beyond the global shapers cohort. They are beyond in wisdom and years than the bulk of the YGL, the young global leaders. But nonetheless, the organization from relatively early on realized that we would be entirely disconnected from the future if we did not include the next generations of leaders. And so we've, in an organic way, allowed for the Young Global Leader Group, which creates cohorts every year. These individuals are nominated by other Young Global Leaders or staff of the World Economic Forum. There's an extensive vetting process that goes on. And the cohorts that are created every vintage year, to use a, mm -hmm. a PE term here, every vintage year is really an extraordinary and eclectic group of individuals, both from a business acumen perspective, but also in terms of how they are tying into societal values and helping communities, mm -hmm. right? On the shaper side, that is, I mentioned organic in the context of the YGLs, but mm -hmm. the shapers are organic on steroids, if I could say that. So here they are local hubs. I may be off by a few, but I think we have roughly 350 to 400 hubs mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. the globe and these are organizing entities that self-select mm -hmm. and work on specific thematics in various jurisdictions. And they coordinate among one another. They have leadership structures. But here, too, it is this self-organizing aspect under the umbrella of the forum, if I could use that term. But it's very much a distributed approach. And we survey these individuals. We provide access to them. Tremendous insights on the future are gleaned through our relationship with these groups, mm -hmm. and they're a valuable part of the overall forum community, for sure. Yeah, in past Davos's, I've always 
potentially enjoyed most of all my interactions with these young people. As you say, and the global shapers of a self-selected and self-organized group of people, that says a lot about them. They're, you know, they're proactive game changers mm. and they're working on some of the most exciting initiatives, whether it be to do with climate change or renewables. I mean, there's, there's such a broad spectrum of people that really want to change the world for the next generation. Yeah, that's right. Um, super inspirational people. Yeah. And I think when you, you know, just to sort of put it in economic terms, when you look at places in Europe, you look at Greece, you look at Italy, uh, you look at Spain, if you look at parts of Africa, I mean, you still have systemic issues with respect to youth unemployment. And so how do you deal with that? You can deal with that in an ivory tower, kind of isolated from uh, broader perspectives, or you can actually have groups like these help you think through the dynamics of how to motivate and promote opportunity among the cohorts that are most effective. Now, the shapers and the YGLs are very accomplished people, but they are dealing in those demographics that help global leadership make sure that they're not disconnected from reality. Absolutely. Without being too stargazy, because I know that the forum doesn't like to be defined by Davos, but it really is one of certainly one of mine just as a mere mortal's highlights of uh, of the year it's a somewhat surreal experience in many respects you can bump into president macron prime minister trudeau walking down the snowy streets but at the same time there is such a focus on meeting amazing people creating amazing connections and trying to make a difference there's a laser light focus you just don't get at other conferences or summits what is it, do you think, that has created that magic? I think it, it gets down to the human element. You know, as an institution and motive partner, certainly many institutions, we talk these days extensively, and it's important, but we talk extensively about technology mm. and the role that technology is going to play. And even this notion that technology is going to disintermediate humans from a job perspective. And even I think there are some profound societal questions around where technology takes us. Yet the magic in the annual meeting is one in which you bring people together, right? Individuals together. Mm -hmm. And they, in a very human way, hash out solutions to very difficult problems. And they do that on a platform. And that platform is absolutely supported and fueled by AI and data. And certainly we have a robust infrastructure that is IT related. But the beauty of the place is really in the human connections. Mm -hmm. And I think it brings you, again, back to – it's not stargazing. It's much more of a practical sort of reality mm -hmm. that leadership needs an environment that is safe, neutral, impartial, and geared toward a mission which is improving humanity, right, and the state of this world that we occupy. We need places like that. And the annual meeting does embody that. But functionally, it's one arrow in a pretty substantial quiver of activities, mm -hmm. both on the event side, mm -hmm. but also in terms of the thematics that we're covering on a you know 365 days a year. So all of these pieces come together in in really what the World Economic Forum offers to its constituencies. Mm -hmm. That's a really important point, the um, impartiality, but mission focused. I mean, two of my colleagues who've been partners of the forum, Alastair Lukies and Rob Havert, both call it their week of creativity. They can go be somewhere safe in isolation with other brilliant minds and not feel restricted by the art of the possible. They go and, and dream and make those dreams a reality, but always benefiting the many, not the few. So yeah, it's a really special, special week. And there are many other events throughout that calendar that are 
exactly the same, uh, equally important where we develop those themes. It's always a real privilege. To dig into your uh, your specific, slightly more niche area, you cover financial services fairly broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a broad portfolio of members, partners, themes and initiatives. Can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff you're working on at the moment? Yeah. So, you know, in my role these days, I I really wear um, a few different hats at the forum. Mm -hmm. One is an institutional hat. So I sit on the executive committee. I work along with Professor Schwab and the managing board and my cohort of leadership in really positioning the institution for the future. Right. So that that occupies a lot of my time and, and running a great dynamic team around the globe and, you know, I don't want to um, pay short shrift to that because it's a big part of my day. The other part of my day is working with one of the largest communities that the World Economic Forum has, and that is financial services providers. So large banks, insurers, asset managers, payment providers, stock exchanges, some of the financial utilities and so on. And this is um, an extremely dynamic group, one that, first off, when you aggregate the amount of employment that these institutions bring together their huge employers, Mm -hmm. right? So real economy implications. They are the mechanisms for capital allocation around the world. So I think it's, you can't really have a functioning economy with the group that we're dealing with. Yet they are also dealing with some pretty substantial and disruptions or challenges or opportunities, you know, depending on what level of optimism you want to apply to to the question. So here, you know, technology, right? How to harness it, how to make it a comparative advantage vis-a-vis others, how to use it for better compliance, to greater efficiencies, to provide greater financial access. Mm-hmm. You know, These are things that our group is extremely focused on because one, their shareholders are focused on it, but two, this is the future of all of these businesses. I just came from a, a partner meeting here just down the block essentially. And you know, 95% of our conversation was about the use of data, you know, which is Sounds as an obvious thing today, but on the first component, like we are producing substantial amounts of data, I mean, on an exponential curve, mm-hmm. right? If you look at the amount of data points that some marketing groups have on the normal, like 95% of the US population, it's like 1,500 plus data points on each person, right? And this raises a whole host of really interesting questions. In the European context, you've got GDPR. In the United States is a bit more of a hodgepodge. Mm-hmm. Um, Globally, there are 120 different data privacy rules. So to your point, like, what are we working on? We're trying to figure this stuff out for our financial services providers. So we're looking at this notion of the appropriate use of customer data for financial services. Clearer in the European context because of GDPR than in the US and certainly than in LATAM, Africa, and major pockets of Asia, right? Open question. We look at the intersection of data and security. So cybersecurity specifically. You're Ballywick, Sam. So, Mm -hmm. you know, fintech, right? We have a more modular financial system today. That's true in the United States. That's true globally. PSD2, other regulations around the world are pushing toward that, greater competition, more access. What does that mean for system stability? In the past, you'd go to HSBC or Bank of America, you'd have all of your needs met. Now you can go to a multitude of financial technology players, in some instances, get a better experience, right? But are those players at the same level in terms of cybersecurity than the large financial institutions that they lean on as partners, right? This is a fundamental question especially in an environment where cybersecurity is becoming so much more important. 
We look at financial inclusion, increasing access and usage to financial products. But, you know, you and I, Sam, may have a bank account, but if we never use that bank account, what is it worth? It's worth nothing. Mm -hmm. So the third piece, which is really important, is to understand how does using financial services improve our financial health? Does it lead to a positive outcome as a result of using these tools that we have? Does it materially improve our lives? Mm -hmm. It's an open question. How do you measure that? Then we have environmental social governance initiatives. We have financial crime piece that we're working on. We're doing a deep dive on AI. The forum has opened an office in San Francisco that's looking at connected devices, looking at autonomous vehicles from a policy perspective, drones. So all of these things are what we're focused on for our partners. And we don't do it alone. We do it by building groups of people with the expertise and the decision-making capacity to bring these topics forward meaningfully. And then we, in many instances, create a public good out of it, either through a report, a publicly accessible set of recommendations, could be to the public sector, could be to the private sector. In certain instances, our work is referenced in regulatory amelioration and change. So we have really cross-cutting effects. But this is the basket of stuff that yeah. we're doing every day. And you, you talked just then about the office you opened in San Francisco. Is your global footprint built around sort of mini centers of excellence all around the world? Yeah, we, we have a total of seven centers. Mm -hmm. And the center that I represent is the Center for Global Industries, right? And we cover 20 industries. Wow. The other centers have myriad functions. We have a group that focuses on the events. We have a group that focuses on cybersecurity. Actually, it's a major initiative on our side. We just, in March, announced the launch of, actually it was in January, but we kicked it off in earnest in March, a cybersecurity center, which is looking to focus on this sort of sprawling topic, but from a resilience and a sort of a notification perspective. And what I mean by that latter point is, can we build a mechanism when the next WannaCry attack occurs that nips WannaCry quicker by notifying the relevant parties that this is a problem that's ongoing and be sort of a dissemination mechanism? And the third piece is, there's an incredible statistic that by 2021, we will have a shortage of 3.5 million individuals mm -hmm. to fill cybersecurity jobs. Wow. We do not have the people power to deal with this evolving topic, yet we are creating exponential amounts of data, and we are potentially setting up flashpoints, both in the financial services system, but also in terms of the interconnections across economies and society. Yeah. Right? You just touched on a point that kind of, well, I get very passionate about. We are going to have a talent shortage across a number of different areas. I think one of the most obvious ones is, yeah, the developer community where it touches new enabling technologies. Today it's AI. It could be any number of, of other things. For me, the key answer is, is going all the way down the supply chain to a complete overhaul of the education system. The lack of vocational learning today is a massive, massive issue. You know, we could talk about STEM and STEAM all day long, but, but really we just need focused learning. You know, kids and people don't need to be all things to all people. We should think about what people enjoy, how people want to be nurtured, and then nurture them in a vocational way rather than sending people to university for three years to have a jolly, for example, four years in the U.S., Although your system actually is far better than ours. Um, still a jolly. Yeah, still a jolly. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I've I experienced that jolly once or twice. What do you think we can do in terms of preventing the skills shortage yeah. most effectively, most quickly? Yeah, I mean, we talked about unemployment, youth unemployment before. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of thoughts around this. You know, first, there's a massive role 
for the private sector to play. There needs to be piping or communication, deep communication between the needs of the business community as they are evolving and academic institutions, mm-hmm. right? And that doesn't start necessarily at university. That starts lower down in terms of the school rankings, yeah. right? Yeah. As young people working their way through the system, it needs to be a dynamic system. Unfortunately, today, it's a very rigid system. But at the same time, we don't want to produce, to your point, a bunch of homogenous individuals. There is tremendous benefit if you think about effective teams in having a diversity of background, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Diversities in expertise and just pure Small. diversity on a human yeah. level, right? You need that. You need gender equality. You need people from different parts of the world. They bring a wealth of knowledge to solving business problems and government problems. But there needs to be much more communication between the business community and academia mm-hmm. And we need to break down some of those silos. I think that's a great point. The relationship between academia and business is it, it's, it's fundamentally broken at the moment. And I, and I think it needs to happen much further down down the chain, not, not just at university level. Thanks, Matthew. That, that's awesome. Um, I know you're, you're involved in a ton of things outside the forum, most of which, yeah, give me a, a fairly warm feeling. Uh, yeah, and quite inspirational. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about some of the other initiatives that you're focused on when, when you're at home? Yeah. I've always believed that to be a well-rounded person, you have to be well-rounded. And that means you've got your fingers in a bunch of different things. There's downside with that. One is on you know personal time, sleep, uh, yeah. <laughs> some practical things. And I don't mean to imply that you should overstretch yourself. But really from a young age, I thought like, okay, how do I help people around me? And that sort of manifested itself in a few ways over the years. So my longest commitment, and I've done some stuff on charities and things, but in terms of longevity, has been serving a community in New York on Long Island as a fireman. So I've done that for 22 years. Um, It is an amazing experience. The camaraderie and really just the situations that you're confronted with in that type of role have an ability to change like your perspective on a lot of things. The second piece, and it's relatively recent in this vis-a-vis the farm and stuff, is um, I've been in an elected official in the same community now for seven years. I'm currently deputy mayor of uh, a municipality, AAA rated if you're looking to buy some <laughs> uni bonds. Um, but it's been an r- extremely steep learning curve. And I think what I've seen through this is a few things. One, in that capacity, I went through, along with the administration, a very difficult period of time. And this related to a natural disaster, which was Hurricane Sandy in 2012, which obliterated the East Coast Mm -hmm. and left large swaths of Manhattan without power for multiple days and actually forced many of the large financial services providers who were downtown to relocate major operations as a result in terms of resiliency going forward. I was actually there. It was an incredible time. Yeah. So much of my existence in this role has been rebuilding from that point. Yeah. And- One of the major tensions was when that storm occurred, there were major pressures for the local, very local community to think more nationally. So if you think about like Long Island proper, some of the major um, districts there were trying to come in and take over our emergency operating procedures and plans. So they were basically trying to usurp local government in an effort to help. But we pushed back on that respectfully. And we said, look, we know the terrain here. We know the actors. Let us do this in much more of a micro way. And this, in very much a microcosm, demonstrated to me the benefit of local organization, of local networks, of local governing ability, and just leaning on people in a locality. Mm -hmm. 
you know, one of the major, now bubbling this up a bit, when you think about economic models, I think one of the major tensions that we're seeing around the world now, and sort of we'll see how it plays out, is the US model and perhaps the European model of kind of bottom-up democratic processes mm-hmm. versus more of state control in places like China, which has worked extremely well. And so you have a host of emerging market economies who are looking at this and saying, which route do I take? Do I have more of a top-down approach or a bottom-up approach? Putting aside a value distinction, we have cultural pieces in the United States that push us toward one direction versus the other. Although in this day and age, that's even being debated a bit, and we're seeing some manifestation of top-down control. With that said, it's a really interesting sort of tug of war. And I felt this on a very micro level during that storm. And again, I think our ability to come through as a community eight years later now, seven years later, is a function of us taking the reins and doing it the way that we needed to Mm -hmm. do it. And it played out. We're in a much stronger place today, frankly than we were in 2012. Well, I've got the warm feeling, so thanks. <laughs> That's amazing. And I know, I know how busy you are in your, your day job. So the fact that you find time and you've been doing it for 22 years. I mean, you're too young to have been doing it for 22 years. It's incredible. Neither a global shaper nor a young global leader, unfortunately. <laughs> no, Blown no. through all of them. <laughs> it's a good way to answer the how old are you question. Um, I think we're getting to the end of our time. And I know you're about to, to jet off again. You've been uh, in five countries over four days, which is incredible. So huge thank you for coming in today. My final question is normally one of my favorite questions. I think today it's going to be particularly special because of the network that you have, you're immersed in, uh, and the mutual respect that you have within that network. Who throughout your career have been some of your um, most impactful business role models? I think it's been an absolute privilege to observe and to participate in the context of the World Economic Forum over the last six and a half years uh, since I joined with the managing board and specifically with Professor Schwab, our executive chairman. It is rare to find someone who has the vision that he does and his ability to grow this institution over almost 50 years right mm. now consistently speaks to that. I mean, it's not um, – we have a time series here to back it up, and it's a pretty long one. And he remains as dynamic as ever. And you know, one of the things that we're very focused on in the context of the forum is how to become more platform-like. You know, If you see so many of the most successful businesses today, they – really have this ethos of a platform approach. Mm -hmm. So we have many of those attributes and we're trying to change our mindsets to think in those terms. And he's been the catalyst behind that. So just watching him operate both from a strategic perspective, but also in terms of seeking input from the staff, from leadership, and then, you know, little things like when you provide that input, he comes back to you with a note personally, dear Matthew or dear whoever, thank you for doing this. That means something. I've been very impressed by Dan Schulman at PayPal. I obviously don't know him as well as I know Professor Schwab, but I think he embodies an enthusiasm for the business and the business is fundamentally providing financial services to all people, right? Mm-hmm, Which is mm-hmm. a mission orientation in its own right. And the success of PayPal, if you look at its stock prices, is extraordinary. And there was a recent hedge fund that took a good position in them with a $125 price target on it. So confidence there too, dynamic organization, platform-like. I've gotten to know the CEO of DTCC, which is the Mm -hmm, largest mm -hmm. settlement clearing firm in the US, Mike Botson, great guy. We went to the same college. He leads with a tremendous humanity about him. He is approachable. He is accessible. 
and strategic. And I think those are rare qualities to find in top leadership. And there are a host of others, you know, all the way back to when I started in the business, the head of the the team that I worked on, we oversaw about a billion dollars in financial services, his interactions with clients, how we led the team, left an indelible imprint on me and also some leaders at the Fed, really where I, I think, if anything, solidified my managerial thoughts about how you run a team, mm-hmm. you know, which are sort of ingrained mm-hmm. and hardwired in me at this point and have worked for the most part pretty well. Amazing. Well, I've always admired Professor Schwab and Dan Schulman from afar. And I know Stephen Daffron actually sat on the DTCC board with Michael Potson and, and has always said, yeah, his humanity and integrity is inspirational. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a great pleasure. And one final World Economic Forum shout out from me. We have our Brain Food newsletter on a Sunday that we send out. It was really inspired, actually, by the the Agenda Weekly from the World Economic Forum that Adrian Monk mm. sends out every week. I can recommend it highly to all of our listeners. It's fascinating. I feel I get a fraction smarter every time I read it, and it keeps me entertained, often for many days and many tube rides. So if anyone wants to find out more, the World Economic Forum website, and specifically the newsletter. From me, from our listeners, an enormous thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motive partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.